Welcome to the ACL Show. Today, we'll be hearing from Joe and Josh as they talk to Catherine Alexa. Catherine is the VP of Care Transitions and High-Risk Product at Allidade, and she shares her thoughts on helping sick patients transition through a fragmented healthcare system and the importance of getting the right data to the right person, helping patients stay healthy, and what a company like Allidade can do with all that data to make that happen. Joe, Josh, take it away. Welcome to the ACO Show. This is Joe Schunkweiler. I lead adoption and training here at Allidade. This is Josh Israel. Welcome to our show. And we are here today with Catherine Alexa. Catherine is the Vice President of Product for Transitions of Care and High Risk. Quite a title. So Catherine, we would love to hear about what you're doing. Uh, But first, why don't we start with a little bit of your background. A lot of people come to Allidade and they have sort of raw talent, but a lot of what we're doing is new and they haven't done it before. You come with real experience, real real relevant practical experience. So why don't you talk us through a bit of that? Well, I don't know if that's an overstatement or not, but I appreciate that compliment, Josh. No, I uh, thanks for having me on today. I'm really excited to be with you guys. Uh, hopefully, we can come up with something very interesting to talk about during this next hour. We never promised um, that. No. <laughs> <laughs> that was an overstatement. Yeah. Yeah, overstatement yes. number one. Okay, great. No, but so so I had a very sort of circuitous path in into Allidade, and and I'll try to give you the the highlights, but. Um, you know, in college, I actually spent time thinking I was going to be a lawyer, got a political science degree, interned for congressmen. I um, uh, got an opportunity sort of uh, out of the blue to join a senior care organization in New Jersey when I was sort of fresh out of college. Fast forward, um, I was working in the corporate office with the senior team, kind of, you know, analyst type of work, learning a bit about the business, really just on spreadsheets and corporate board meetings. And I just started to get extraordinarily bored and I, I had this moment where I'm like, oh, I think I really want to work with people, like real people, right. and maybe work on some real problems. And um, I had a talk with the COO and he was a young guy, super talented, and, and he said, well, what do you think you want to do? And I said, well, I don't know. I think I'd really like to learn our business and learn like what drives it and how we actually help people on a day-to-day basis. And to be honest with you, I'm a little nervous about what that looks like. And he said, well, here's what I can tell you, you know, we own nursing facilities all over the state and being a nursing home administrator is a great job. It's an easy job. You, you know, you come to work in the morning, you run your management meeting, and then, you know, maybe you'll get to leave, play, play some golf in the afternoon. It's going to be great. So show up at a skilled nursing facility in Hackensack, New Jersey, and lo and behold, it wasn't the the rosy picture that was painted to be by our Don, the Don Draper version <laughs> of the nursing home administrator. Exactly. Yeah. So Don Draper was nowhere to be found. There were lots of very elderly, sick patients. There was overwhelmed, chaotic staff. There were lines out the door of the administrator of people who would come up with complaints every morning. There were demented residents who really thought the staff was stealing from them. I mean, just the myriad of problems that I 
was confronted with just in the nursing home business at first was very overwhelming. And as I got into it, I just, I remember I had this mentor, his name was Steven. I was working in the sort of marketing department at the time admissions. And he just, he taught me how to help these people. And, you know, it's very few jobs, I think, and, and as physicians, both of you know that, you know, it's a rare gift to be able to physically help someone in a day and to have improved someone's experience in a day. And that was sort of what I thrived on, was I started to realize that every day I came to work, every new patient I talked to, every new family that walked through the door, I was able to somehow improve something because they were dealing with just literally horrible things every single day. So as I grew to love this population and love the business, and every year I was in it longer, I realized that it was tragically broken mm-hmm. and that the incentives that we were held to as business owners in that industry were mostly focused on profit, mostly focused on volume, mostly focused on keeping people, frankly, there as long as possible, as long as they had insurance coverage. But as soon as they didn't, it was like, get them out, right? And so there were these very perverse incentives that didn't really align with the thing that kept me going, which was like helping someone every day. As I traveled down this path, about eight years in, I said, well, you know, I really think I actually have to go back to my original goal of going to law school because I don't really know how to fix this and it probably has to be done in Washington. Or if I want to work with, you know, residents and patients, families every day, I could be an elder law attorney and help them figure out how to sort of fight the system. So I started in law school and about three quarters of the way through my first year, I received a knock on the door from a startup company. Uh, The startup company was doing something called bundled payments and this whole new sort of like, we put quotes around it, value-based care arena. And it was sort of hot and new and it was coming up along the side of the ACOs and the ACOs really focusing on managing total cost. Bundled payments really focused on managing an episode of care, which was obviously what I was familiar with. You know, sort of someone coming out of the hospital, coming into a skilled nursing facility or into their home and needing to just manage that recovery period. So what I ended up deciding to do was take the chance, put law school on hold, go see what I could learn about episodes of care and how some someone might control some of those costs and utilization in that time period. And I spent four years with that organization really just trying a ton of different things. We worked with health systems and we worked with uh, hospital-based physicians and um, orthopedic surgeons, cardiac physicians, and skilled nursing facilities that really wanted to do more than just the fee-for-service treadmill. They wanted to say, we have an innovative approach. We care about managing more than just what's right in front of us, but this entire episode of care, which was tremendously informative. And, you know, to lead us a little bit more to the the present time, you know, I I was on a walk with Farzad, uh, the founder of our company early in 2018, before I came on board and was talking to him about the work that we had done and how we had really engaged skilled nursing facilities in this concept of not just thinking about, do we have an insurance payer? How long can we keep the patient here? How much money can we make? But in how can we more quickly get this patient transitioned home and incentivizing them for safe transitions and and safe recovery instead? Um, And I remember my my frame of reference, as as I've laid out, was pretty much based around a patient goes to the hospital, right? So the hospital being the top of the pyramid and flowing downstream to me, the skilled nursing facility, and then what I would think of as downstream to the primary care doctor. And I remember stopping on that walk with Farzad and he looked at me and he said, no, 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 
the primary care doctors at the top of the pyramid. You have this all wrong. It's backwards. And I, I sort of had this aha moment that while I had been doing great work and frankly, we achieved much greater results than we could have imagined in that bundled payment program, that I hadn't sort of worked on the root of the problem, which is before a patient gets really sick, before they go into a facility, how do you start to intervene? How do you start to prevent them from having that, what I consider to be horrible, awful transitional care experience that then you're sort of playing um, catch up. You're, you're, it's a very reactive industry. Something terrible has happened, you're now reacting to how do we have a less terrible thing happen, prevent it from happening in that same way, and, and then when it does mitigate, um, mitigate that. So that's sort of the path to Allidade. Let's talk a little bit about episodes of care. You know, generally the system outside of clinically integrated networks is set up so that the, you know, the ER doc does what she does, the primary care doc does what he does, the SNF has its role, mm -hmm. but nobody's looking at it as an episode. And for the patient, of course, it's an episode. Um, for Medicare, who's paying for it, it's de facto an episode, but it hasn't been treated that way generally by the system. And I know you've put some thought into this. I'd, I'd love to hear about it. Yeah, thank you for that question, Josh. Uh, you know, so when I reflect back on on the reasons and the and the things that drove me sort of out of the skilled nursing facility operation uh, world, this was one of them, and it was you know the frustration that I felt that my staff felt, and that more importantly, the patients and families felt about the fact that the people at the hospital had no idea what was going on with them once they left the hospital doors, that their primary care doctor had no idea that they were having a hospital episode, or frankly, what the recovery plan was. And most importantly, I think the the frustration is one thing, but but the adverse impact of that. Yeah, we're all in know. healthcare personally, and I'm sure we've all experienced where you have a family or friend who goes through the system and they're all calling you saying, yeah. what is up with the system? Who's gonna advocate for me in the system? That's that, exactly right. And the point that you made earlier about the way the patient views it, I think is an excellent one. Um, and even in my own, I haven't been clinically active in a long time and have more experience in hospital uh, as a patient and a parent and a spouse of a patient mm -hmm. um, than I have recently as a clinician. But that um, what's intuitive, if you've ever worked in a hospital system, that the doctor that you see for one specialty versus the ICU attending versus the doctor that may have admitted you from the ED have no idea about the continuity. You know, I have many friends who went into uh, emergency medicine um, uh, and were emergency medicine residents in New York City when I was training, and part of the new wave then was doing follow-up calls to figure out what happened. And there's no reason that you wouldn't know what happened. Mm -hmm. But for them, at the at New York Presbyterian, it was like a, um, and I think it's a great thing. I'm, I'm sure they still do it, and I'm sure many other places do this. For the ER docs, it was, were we right? Were we wrong? Were we way off? How is that patient doing? Like that, that's just a little piece of that chain. So um, yeah, it's not intuitive for folks at all in a hospital to think, oh, I see a doctor's. That's my visit there. I'm going to get billed in one big bucket usually. So why don't any of them have any idea what the other one did along the way? Right? There's good reasons. Healthcare is complicated. There's lots of different expertise that's needed to make a decision. There's two, data overload is how I would think about it. How much can I actually process in this moment? And I'm sort of sitting with this patient doing the best that I can in this moment. But again, back to Josh's point, like, you know, who's the advocate? Who's the shepherd that's going to take this person through and make sure that things don't fall through the cracks? So 
you know, I think the the radical idea behind an episode of care was that instead of appointing a specific person to have that role, um, if you change the financial in infrastructure and incentive, people will fix this, right? And and I think that's one of those, you know, the care will follow the money. It's one of those tragic things about American healthcare, which is if you financially incentivize someone to do something, they'll probably do it more often than just if it's the right thing to do. How do we, through our work here, imbue that same spirit that like the best of thinking about this on an episode by episode mm -hmm. basis like how does that pull it out of the hospital like bring us out to where we are with primary care docs now Allidade docs all over the country um like what are the systems and technologies that help us support that kind of thinking Absolutely. And, you know, I, I know on many other episodes, we've talked about our technology um, stack and the way that we integrate information from different sources. And I think one of the, the most critical things that I think about all the time um, as someone who sort of owns our strategy on transitions of care and high risk populations is what is that critical information that we can provide that doesn't provide data overload and you know drowning our physicians and their practice managers in data, but surfacing the most insightful thing. So I can give you a couple of examples, right? So when we think about a patient that goes into a hospital and is discharged, one of our biggest opportunities for impact is that transitions uh, transitional care uh, management visit. That's a newer Medicare code. Not everyone is billing them at this point, but they're becoming a lot more well-known. So you're referring to the visit where a physician can get paid a little bit extra if they see the patient uh, within a very short time after a hospital discharge. Exactly. And, and there's some fairly tight rules around it, frankly, which are, you know, you have to call the patient within two business days of their discharge you have to get them in somewhere between 7 and 14 days after they were discharged in order to build this. It's really an enhanced fee-for-service code. But what we've seen in our data is that if you do these transitional care management visits, it's much more effective than just having a standard you know, physician follow-up appointment. And I think even when I was working in episodes before coming to Allidade, we had this sort of talking point about physician follow-up primary care follow-up, but there was never really more to it than that. And what we've been able to do, and I'm super excited about, particularly for 2019, is synthesize information that's available through HIEs or you know hospital direct feeds and sometimes even other data vendors about that moment the patient comes out we're surfacing that to our primary care practices so that they can be successful in that you know 48-hour outreach, that they can have the right conversation with that patient at that moment. And frankly, folks don't always realize that that conversation is so critical. It's not just a, hey, can we get you in for the follow-up? When There's you say so we're surfacing more. it, how do we let them know? Yeah, great. Um, so within our Allidate app, we have very simple work lists um, that, that folks follow. And you know those work lists are populated with different data sources for different reasons. And our Transitions of Care work list populates um, these specific hospital discharges, and in some cases, to skilled nursing facility discharges. Because really, this code, this Transitional Care Management Code, applies for any inpatient facility discharge. Um, they, they have the, the right information from the hospital and can get that patient in for, uh, for the follow-up visit in a timely manner. Why do you, you know, given that you've worked so intensely on this at Allidade, um, 
this actually came up in our interview with Anish Chopra mm-hmm. about um, what an aligned policy, just looking at the, the TCM or transitional care management visit, that uh, the policymakers thought this is a good thing. Data tells us that this is a good thing to do to see a patient in the two days uh, when they leave a facility. Um, so we're going to incentivize that with a little bit extra payment to in- incentivize uh, practices to do that because it's good for the patient, um, it decreases readmissions, all the outcomes we want, right? So this should be an easy lift. <laughs> Why isn't it? Yeah, I mean, oh, for so many reasons, Joe. I mean, the transitional care management um, opportunity is 100% uh, in the right place. The, the incentives are right, the execution is possible, but when you get to looking at someone on the ground and how their day-to-day workflow works and the real life stories, kind of back to the patient and family at the center, what are they going through? Think about what it might mean, right? So you have an elderly Medicare patient who's discharged from the hospital. Maybe they had heart failure, some combination of heart failure and COPD, if you're lucky. Maybe they had a a surgery, but they've had a pretty um, difficult medical experience that they're just coming out of. Now you have to be able to get them on the phone. (laughs) I mean, just the, the realities of being able to get that person on the phone are much greater than we can imagine. So our sort of you know pie in the sky, well, we're just gonna serve up the data and then they're gonna do the right thing and everything's gonna flow perfectly, right? Well, we know it doesn't happen like that. So getting these folks on the phone to even get them scheduled in is a challenge. And then think even more so than getting them on the phone, now you have to get them into the office. Well, now this person can maybe barely walk, maybe they can barely breathe, maybe they're in a lot of pain. Um, And many of our primary care doctors, as Josh, you know, may or may not have the capability to do an in-home visit with this patient. So the transitional care management um, concept in itself is a perfect idea. I think um, the execution of it is challenging for many reasons, and we're continuing to find innovative approaches of how to get people to do this more often. We have talked on this podcast about healthcare in terms of different analogies, including trying to design a delivery system in a city where the the roads were were laid down on meandering cow paths, or we're building a house on uh, with um, in a in a place where the plumbing was not put in correctly, and you're trying to build on top of it. So when you think about these issues with episodes of care and transitions, um, what needs to be done from a technological point of view to notify providers? What's what's not there right now that you've been working on? You know, it's interesting because I think we've gotten really good at the reactive and uh, post-event notification in healthcare. And I had a recent interesting conversation with uh, someone who is probably way overqualified to work with us here at Aldade, but who's going to spend a month or two with us in the coming year. And he's just this incredible physician, leader, thinker. And Wait a second. He asked us... <laughs> Yeah, right. And he asked us, what do you do about the rising risk population? How do you identify rising risk? And my my answer to him was, well, we're really not. You know, we're we're identifying patterns that exist. We we don't have an AI tool today that could say, you know, I'm seeing that this patient hasn't full, hasn't filled their medications in the last 2 months plus 
there's something else going on in the community that we're seeing. You know, so there's lots of thought and theory out there about how valuable how valuable it would be to to predict someone who's rising risk, right? But um, we're not there yet. I think primary care in its current state and even with Allidate's help is still in a very reactive setting where we're saying we're noticing some patterns based on Medicare claims uh, and or live transition information, but that's a bit that's about where it stops. And frankly, that's pretty cutting edge compared to what they had been doing before. But I think that's where we need to go in the future. You know, it's interesting as you talk about this, I'm actually having a bit of an epiphany in real time about the way we talk about risk in value-based care and healthcare and contracts, and then how um, risk plays in all across the rest of the non-healthcare world. Um, and I'm sort of reminded of the way risk management as a discipline and as a profession um, and as a job works in the financial world. Um, and that there are more analogs than we would think uh, at first blush in that where we think of uh, risk being it's going to be uh, a big cost driver for us um, and that you know the, the important thing is that whatever that number is that we have for an individual patient is accurate, mm-hmm. right? We don't want a patient to be very sick, um, which many are, and um, cost a lot of money as a reflection of that illness and have a number attached to it that is much lower and inaccurate to that level of risk. And in the financial world, it's the same thing. So if you've seen the movie Margin Call, which is really good, you should see it, um, it's all about a risk analyst and a risk manager in a bank essentially seeing the mortgage crisis unfold in real time at this bank. And the idea that rising risk is the place you catch it. That's the leading indicator. And banks miss it, financial institutions miss it, and we're not even set up to to know where we are on that spectrum. Not just us at Allity, but anywhere, True. right? Because um, we're always working with a material that's months to years old mm-hmm. in terms of our risk data. Um, so back to Josh's question, um, in your opinion, how do we more accurately assess patient risk and get those leading indicators? Like what are the you know, magic wand technical mm-hmm. tools that you would put into a system uh, to, to have a better view into that black box? And, and Joe, I just hope you know that if you have an epiphany during the Allidade workday, Allidade owns, owns the idea. <laughs> noted, noted. Okay. Yeah, I, and so I think that's a great segue to talk a bit about how we're thinking about our end-of-life initiatives, and I happen to have the subject matter expert for that sitting here on this podcast, Dr. Josh Israel. He um, has been working with me and, and, and our team over the last well, you were working on it before I got here, Josh. Um, but this idea of predicting a risk of mortality. Mm-hmm. And, you know, from my perspective, and I'd love, Josh, if you'd chime in a bit about, you know, just in general how we're thinking about this and what we think any interventions around this would be. But from my perspective, if we have a good idea of a specific event like mortality, which is a big one, right? Mm-hmm that might be coming down the pike 
we can then implement a very specific intervention. And this isn't the first time I've been, you know, involved in thinking about how to implement a risk model, right? So like I said, risk is thought about in all these different ways. And I think the frustration that providers and healthcare professionals feel about risk models is that they're vague. And you say, okay, you're at risk. Maybe it's a little bit of the for what, and then so what? What do I have to do? Right. So, Josh, I'd love to hear from you and just for a few uh, moments about what we're doing on the mortality algorithm. Sure. One of the things we've been working pretty hard on here is trying to identify who is at highest risk for death within uh, the next period of time that we've identified as 12 months. We could have set that up to some other time parameter. And uh, a few people have misunderstood our intent with that. We've had a couple of providers who we talked to about this and they said, why? Why are you telling me which patients I need to deny care to? Um, and it's it's really the opposite of that. The, the intent of it is to really be able to identify who may die so that we can be sure that somebody sits down with them and says, if something were to happen to you in the next period of time, what would you want done? Would you want everything done? Great, we are gonna make sure that happens. Would you rather focus on comfort and being at home and uh, developing relationships towards the end of your life? We wanna get that in writing so we can make sure that's what happens to you. And there is so much data out there. There's a lot of claims information. There's a lot of other patterns that can really help identify uh, who may who may die. And we're trying to um, we're trying to refine it. We're pretty good at it already right now uh, at Allidade. And trying to get this information, the next step is a challenge. So we you try to get this to busy providers. You try to get them to take the next steps. And uh, the translation of from the really what's a very powerful idea into the reality can be challenging. Mm -hmm. Yeah, especially with a thorny uh, issue like that that is tough for any doctor mm -hmm. that doesn't, you know, specifically manage patients at the end of life, um, you know, physicians or any, any other provider who works in hospice or in, you know, high mortality specialties. Um, yeah, I'm, not, I'm both surprised and not surprised at all mm -hmm. that that's the... the tenor of the discussion sometimes. Yeah. yeah, and I think sometimes it's as simple as people haven't been trained in it. Other times it's that um, they're just uncomfortable having the conversation or they may not want to see that their patient could die. It's somebody that they've known for a long time and care very much about. Um, my favorite story on this is talking to one of our providers and we, we showed him his list of patients saying, you know, these are patients we think are at risk. We want to make sure you, you sit down and find out what they want. And uh, he pointed to one person and said, why is, why is this person on this list? This is not a good list. This person is really healthy. And I looked and the patient was 92 years old. Um, and that's why they're on the list. And I think the provider just had known this person forever and just couldn't picture the, the bad thing happening. So it, it, it's interesting working with the transition from data to, to primary care. Yeah, I think that's fascinating, Josh, because one of the things we don't often talk about, I think, in healthcare is, is this, this juxtaposition of, what does my medical training and my personal you know, perception tell me versus what does the data tell me? And that's, I think, the beautiful opportunity we have here at Allidate is to marry those two things and say, well, we fully believe that your training was right, that you're a great doctor, that you absolutely know the right care for your patient. But have you considered this contextual information that might add to your internal algorithm of the right care for that patient? And, you know, I, I just have to add that, you know, since I came, I've, I've been so impressed with your work on this and just truly dear to my heart because 
you know, one of the sort of forays I had in the post-acute setting prior to joining, you know, the bundled payment startup was in the hospice arena. So I think anything we can do, whether it be with our risk algorithms, with the education that you're leading, with the truly good work that our care managers are doing to support this effort is going to increase um, the, the, the satisfaction level of our patients, the transparency among them and their families, and really understanding what those wishes are, because this is one of those thorny issues that um, isn't often and resolved well in healthcare. And actually, it's a good lead into a, a, a next topic that, that can be interesting is figuring out what Allidade can do to help this, what practices can do, and then what to do when neither one is ideally situated to, to address an issue, sort of partnerships. Yeah, so Josh, I think partnerships is such a fascinating uh, topic and of conversation. And, and as I made the transition into Allidate in 2018, I was so excited because our leadership team seemed really open uh, to this idea of not taking everything on. And, and many times in a corporate environment, you hear this, you know, the buy versus build debate. Should we build it ourselves or should we buy it? Should we partner? Um, and, and truly, when you're running an accountable care organization, one of the easiest mistakes to make is to think that you can do everything well or that you can do all of the initiatives that you're setting out to do on your own. And, and you know, as I came in, I think one of the questions I tried to ask was, what are the things that we're not set up to do well? What are the things that our practices aren't set up to do well on their own? And, um, you know, the mortality algorithm conversation that we had uh, is a great uh, tee up for one of the partnerships that we did in 2018 with a group that does advanced care planning. Um, and truly, they specialize in, in one thing. <laughs> they try to do one thing well, and that is calling patients and families and engaging them in end-of-life care conversations. Um, and you know just as well as I do that many practices are hesitant to take this work on slash don't have the ability to um, to do it from a time management perspective. And they were welcoming of this with a little education and handholding and they, they accepted it. And we've seen extremely positive results and feedback from patients um, on that type of partnership. So we're excited about 2019 because I think there's several other things on the horizon, such as potential partnerships with episodes of care companies, or um, in-home visiting or palliative care organizations, so much more to come on that. Catherine, thanks so much for your time today. It was really interesting to hear uh, all about the great work you're doing here at Allidate. Thanks for having me.